0: Hello and welcome to PainCast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Reyna, a physiotherapy student at the University of British Columbia.
1: I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. We'll be your hosts for today's episode. Today we are joined by Arthur Woznowski Vu. He is a licensed
0: physiotherapist, PhD candidate, proud dad, husband, and lifelong artist from Montreal. After a few years of clinical practice and several professional development courses, he became very interested in understanding pain according to the latest science for the benefit of enhancing his effectiveness as a physio to help people living with pain. This led Arthur to pursue a PhD in rehabilitation science at McGill University and he is now in his final year. He has also done some teaching at the university level. At the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, Arthur has been the chair of the pain science division since 2021, and he's currently in the process of launching his own chronic pain
1: rehab clinic. In this episode, we get into Arthur's work in pain science research and advocacy at the pain science division, the value of the pain science division, and the importance of integrating pain science with physiotherapy practice. Enjoy. Hi Arthur, how are you doing?
2: Good, good. Happy to be here. How are you guys doing?
0: Doing great. I'm doing great, thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you for speaking with us today. Tiffany and I are very excited to chat with you and I'm sure your insights will provide a lot of uh, value to our audience as well. So to start off, uh, can you tell us about your area of practice in physiotherapy and research and how you got here?
2: Yeah, let me kind of backtrack a little bit. I graduated from McGill in 2013, and that same year at the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's annual congress, the plenary speakers, was actually Dr. Lorimer Mosley. And and that was um, a pretty influential moment for me. This plenary speech really kind of caught my attention in terms of how pain is so ubiquitous in everything that we do in physiotherapy. Well, maybe not everything, but very close to uh, and 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 how fascinating it is as a concept. Of course, it's not so fascinating when you're living it, but but, but from an outside perspective, as someone who is just kind of getting into the world of physical rehabilitation therapy, this was something that I found super interesting. and and I mean, one of the things that that really kind of caught my attention was hurt doesn't equal harm, right? Where you could have pain. And it may or may not be uh, perfectly related to how much tissue damage there is. In fact, there could be pain even without tissue damage. And we can get into that later uh, if that interests you. But but that started really opening my eyes to to, to the science of pain and really trying to see that there could be a lot of value in getting better at looking at the most up-to-date pain science and trying to implement it in everyday clinical practice. And so that's what I started trying to do as I was working in the practice and, and just kind of seeing all sorts of cases as one does in a private practice, just in the community and try to, you know, take some weekend courses and, and other pro- professional development opportunities to, uh, to gather more expertise in, in pain science, uh, in, in treating pain that is a little bit more complex or more persistent pain cases. And ultimately, as as you said in the intro, it it led me to start doing a PhD and and getting more deeply involved. But even before that, uh, what the pain science division offered uh, for the first time in 2015 was a mentorship program. And as a young clinician, just a couple of years into the workforce, a mentorship program felt very appealing because you can take courses, you can gather a bunch of knowledge, but it seems like there's always this gap between. This kind of theoretical knowledge and then actually applying it in practice. And so I, I found the mentorship program to be super helpful in terms of developing my clinical reasoning, talking over challenging cases, but especially really kind of bridging that gap between, okay, now I've learned all these things on courses, but you know, how do I really implement that in my day-to-day practice? And, and in a way that that kind of got me involved with the pain science division for the very first time and kind of got roped into some volunteer roles. And we can get into that a little bit later on uh, if you want more details. But it so uh, happened that from that first involvement in 2015, right now I'm the chair of the pain science division. So it's been a nice journey.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. I can, although you're a lot farther along in your journey um, with regards to involvement in pain science I can really relate to that initial fascination of you know expanding beyond looking at pain from I guess a biomedical lens and seeing it more holistically and then wanting to look into it more in through various facets so that's really interesting to hear I'm also curious because you know you're a clinician and a researcher so I'm wondering how being both a clinician and a researcher has influenced your client care over the years
2: Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I think I wouldn't be the only one to to say it, but I feel that there's a lot of benefit in getting involved in both areas. now it's not for everyone to do necessarily, but you can do it to different extents. I did it in a relatively formal fashion in terms of actually pursuing uh, graduate studies but uh, but you could also do it through through other types of involvement. But what I find very valuable is that sometimes in some cases, clinical practice is not informed by evidence as much as it could be and i feel that when you're involved with research that's one way that you can really really up to date with the latest evidence and and research and and thinking already about trying to implement that in your clinical practice and be as evidence-informed as you can with the most current evidence. Now, you can also do that just by having a kind of disciplined uh, involvement in, in in keeping up with, with the literature or taking courses. So this is kind of one way of doing it, but it's a bit more of an in-depth way of doing it since you really kind of get intimately familiar with the research process and, and, and it helps you kind of Uh, interpret the evidence. And on the flip side, research sometimes can be perceived as being quite distant from the day-to-day reality that clinicians have in clinical practice. And by remaining involved as a a clinician, I think that there's huge benefits in really anchoring your perspective as a researcher in, in ways that take into consideration, okay, well, how does it actually connect to the day-to-day reality of clinical practice. So it really forces you to uh, be engaged in one world while having the lenses of another world at the same time and, and, and really being involved with that. And being a clinician scientist, it's something that I really believe in a lot. And in 2018, I did a panel discussion about it at CPA Congress, which a couple of years later followed up with the publication, an editorial in Physiotherapy Canada with co-authors uh, Dr. Patrick Purcell and Dr. Anudon who are also physiotherapists, PhDs. And, and we talked about uh, in that editorial uh, about more in depth about what we feel are the strengths and values of of being involved in in both worlds. So, if you're interested, you can definitely look that up. Uh, so, it's an editorial in Physiotherapy Canada, and so if you just look up like clinician scientists, uh, it's going to come up.
0: Okay, wonderful. I'm wondering on a practical level, how your client care has changed since you sort of became more interested in pursuing research? And do you have any sort of practical examples of how you might approach pain differently now, given that experience?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, I think what's nice to appreciate when you get involved in research is how things are not black and white and how things are very nuanced, how there's a lot of individual variability. Start thinking about you know, not so much about a specific number, but you start thinking about ranges and you know standard deviations and and all this kind of wiggle room that exists and all this potential for error when you interpret things. And so it, it really kind of forces you to have a much more kind of nuanced, flexible way of thinking about uh, the evidence and how to implement it in practice, so that you don't think about it as oh, this paper said that, therefore this is the right answer. And you just kind of follow that with maybe not enough kind of critical thoughts and integration. It, in a way, it, it it kind of lends more space for you know, clinical experience and uh, patient preferences and, and the other factors you take into account so that you can better shape what you can gather from, from the evidence. So, so I think that's one major strength that, that I got out of uh, being involved in research because as a fresh out of school PT it was very tempting uh, very attractive to try to find these courses or, or or that really give you this complete certainty about this is the way to do it this is the way to look at it and, and then there's like no nuance which can be uh, very seductive because because it 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 fills you with confidence that oh yeah this is the way it is and and there isn't like maybe a few different ways to look at it and and all this kind of case by case and individual variability and all that that messy stuff so I, so I think that's kind of one thing that I highlight and and of course there's other things that people can talk about you know it makes it easier to to interpret and keep up with the literature and and being a current clinician from an evidence standpoint also helps you to be a lot more comfortable. With, test and retest and outcome measures and and all that stuff, which is quite prevalent in research. So yeah, so those are just some of the things I'd highlight.
0: Right. So I guess in, it's kind of made you a more flexible clinician in the sense of it allows you to take in all of this information you gain from research and all of the reading you do related to your areas of interest. But then you also have you know a better ability to see individuals and be a little bit more flexible in how you approach their care yeah is that kind of yeah absolutely
2: and 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 what's what's also something that struck me when I got more involved in research is that in the clinical world we we sometimes get somewhat for lack of better term, somewhat territorial about this is physiotherapy versus this is this other profession versus this is other profession but when you go in research a lot of these kind of like ideas about professions you know those boundaries kind of blur because the focus is more about what's the intervention or what's the phenomenon that you're trying to evaluate. And so now you're you're not thinking so much about from one profession to another but you're really just thinking about the patient and what what could help them. And and I feel that kind of mindset is also very helpful to to adopt.
0: Right, that's very interesting. I also wanted to circle back to your role on the pain science division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. So I'm curious to hear more about what brought you to the Pain Science Division and why you're passionate about your current role.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as I alluded to earlier, you know there was that like plenary talk in 2013 from Dr. Lermer Mosley. There was my initial involvement uh, a couple of years later with uh, the mentorship program at the Pain Science Division, and those were kind of like my my first the first hooks <laughs> that that really kind of got me hooked on pain science. But I think what really kind of got me interested in being involved, on the one hand, you can think about it in a way that's maybe not only tied to the pain science division, but maybe just to like any volunteer involvement, let's say in the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. And it's this idea that when you get involved, you can play a pretty big part, a pretty influential part in in how the profession is evolving. And within a something like the pain science division within the practice area that's, that's interesting for you. And so you really get into these really interesting leadership opportunities that, that can really shape where the profession is going. And, and so if you are in a situation where, you know, maybe you got into physiotherapy, having a certain vision or idea of what physiotherapy should be, then once you actually started uh, working, uh, or or even when you're still at school, maybe you were faced with certain situations that made you realize a discrepancy between what your 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 vision or your ideal of what physiotherapy is. Well, when you get involved and you get into these kind of leadership positions as, as a volunteer at the Canadian Physiotherapy Association or within your own practice area specifically, like the Pain Science Division. Well, in these leadership positions, you you now have the opportunity to to start. Closing that discrepancy between reality and what you, what your vision for reality was for the profession and, and your practice area, and so there's this wonderful opportunities to to be involved with that. Uh, also from a standpoint, and this is kind of really the same thing, advocacy. And so you can really get involved in some important advocacy efforts. For example, right now in my role as as chair of the pain science division, I'm also involved in a working. Group that gathers together other chairs from other divisions, so other practice areas, as well as the staff from the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, as well as other members of the Pain Science Division, and together as a working group, where I'm that I'm leading, where we have a national advocacy campaign that we're launching to really promote the value of physiotherapy in relation to pain care, and specifically between 2019 and 2021. Was the Canadian Pain Task Force, which was a federally mandated task force in response to the opioid crisis and illicit opioids, and, and, and they produced a, three reports, with the last report being a set of recommendations and an action plan for pain in Canada. And so, and so you have these recommendations from the Canadian Pain Task Force report, and at the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, and in my role as chair of the pain science division, We decided to to go ahead and step up and say, okay, you're identifying all these gaps in pain care in Canada, you're making all these recommendations. Well, us physiotherapists are very important key players in in co-leading with other health professionals, the the response to, to these recommendations, the implementation of these recommendations. And so by getting involved, there, there's this opportunity to do this national advocacy effort uh, to really raise the profile of physiotherapy in a way that aligns with, with what I think is a strength in physiotherapy. And, and you know, in, in terms of just kind of more broadly, uh, other people and, and just kind of joining the pain science division, you know, it's only 35 bucks per year. To be part of the pain science division and and when we think about advocacy efforts like the one that i just mentioned the more people that you represent the more members you have behind the message the stronger the message is and the the more impact it makes when you're starting to promote this message to health canada or members of parliament uh, or the government MPs or whoever uh, else as a stakeholder or decision maker, it carries more weight to have more people. So to, to get back to kind of your original question about why, what inspired me to be part of the pain science division. Well, as we know, when we think about our provincial regulatory bodies, our uh, physio colleges, or in Quebec, the old professionnel the physiothérapeutes you know, their mandate is the protection of the public. They're not there for us. They're there for the public. Whereas professional associations like the Canadian Physiotherapy Association and its provincial branches or the special interest divisions, their mandate, our mandate, is is to serve you, the physiotherapists, in helping you in any way that we can, be it advocacy to really kind of raise the profile of the profession a certain way, be it in terms of helping you keep up with your continuing education and having professional development programs like mentor programs and so forth. So, if you want to be help helpful with the advocacy effort, just by being an extra number in the number of members, you're already making a, a big difference in in helping move the profession forward. And then, if you decide to get more involved, that that's totally up to you. But these are these are the kind of things that that really motivate me. At first, I wasn't even sure if I was going to get involved, but I just wanted to contribute an extra number in terms of a paying member. Uh, behind any advocacy effort that would happen.
0: Yeah. So it seems like being a part of the pain science division is really a key way to make change in the field. And I think that's really exciting for myself and probably Tiffany as well, because um, being a part of the student committee has been sort of like a stepping stone towards the pain science division. So that's, that's exciting to hear that there's all of these opportunities. Yeah. So
2: I've been talking for a while. I'm I'm curious to kind of flip this on, on the two of you. Can you tell me a little bit about out what got you interested in, in in getting involved, and you can and you can talk a little bit about the student committee at the Pain Science Division.
0: Sure. Yeah, I can start by describing our roles on the student committee, and then maybe we can get into what brought us there in the first place. So, uh, basically, Tiffany and I work together to lead various projects on the Pain Science Division student committee, and we work with other committee members who are also other students, uh, physiotherapy students across. Canada to make these projects happen. Uh, So the Paincast is one of them, which is what we're doing now. And we also have been organizing a student forum, which will happen in mid-May of this year. So the student forum will provide other physio students and new grads, among others who are interested, basically with a chance to hear from various experts in pain science and what their careers in pain science have looked like. And um, yeah, and then the student committee also meets to discuss various pain-related case studies from real client encounters. So it's been a great experience so far. And then in terms of why I got interested in this in the first place, well, I sort of came to the realization that I'm really interested in pain science because working with clients to manage their pain is a key role that physiotherapists play on an everyday basis. So it, it really takes up a lot of our work. That's what that's a big reason why people come to see us is to help them manage their pain. But at the same time, the experience of pain is extremely complex and individualized. So I wanted to take a deeper dive into understanding how to approach complex pain and learn more about pain in general, uh, as well as connect with others who are like-minded. And the pain science division student committee was one way I could do this. And then from there as well, I, I also wanted to mention that my undergrad is a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, <clears throat> so I came into the physio program uh, at UBC with a somewhat holistic mindset when it comes to health and well-being. Um, and so I'm quite interested in taking on a more biopsychosocial approach to pay- to pain and client care in general, and I think that really aligns with uh, pain science and um, the work that's done at the pain science division. Yeah, and then I'll also pass uh the mic onto Tiffany so she can share why she became
1: interested as well. Yeah, I started um this physio program and I saw the opportunity to participate in pain science division and I immediately got really interested in it because wanting to be a physio, I know and I have experience with with being for example, a physiotherapy assistant that people usually come to see us because they have, you know, some sort of pain and I have have friends with uh, pain in different areas, joint pain or uh, pain from injury. And I know from my own experience as well, that pain has a lot of effect on our lives in not only physically, but also mentally and socially and energy and all of that. So I think being able to more effectively address uh, patient's pain concern means a lot to our patients. And that will even improve their quality of life. That's why I'm very interested in getting involved in the pain science division and uh, being a part of the force of advancing our practice and understanding of pain so we can better serve our patients. And very similar to what Arthur, your your passion and your uh, excitement about the potential when you get involved as uh, the chair of the pain science division, I share the same excitement as a co-chair of the Student Association, being able to facilitate and drive conversations about pain and physiotherapy, just even just amongst students. So these students, when they graduate to become physiotherapists, have a more nuanced, the more well-rounded holistic understanding of how can we work with patients in pain. And Paincast, what we're doing right now, is definitely one of the, a very passionate project I have to drive these conversations and as you say a lot of us maybe we will have one sort of mindset of how pain works and how we should approach pain and treatment a certain way but there there are also many many different thoughts and many different philosophies so I am uh, quite interested in featuring these uh, on the podcast and just yeah just really advocate for our patients. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about our passions and um, the excitement we have when, when it comes to the potential of participating in the pain science division. I'm interested in learning a little more about the pain science division itself. And uh, Arthur, you will be great to, you know, inform our audience, like, what is this division about? Why would people should really want to get involved?
2: Absolutely, uh, it'd be my pleasure. And uh, so, thanks, Raina and Tiffany, for for sharing your passion for the pain for the area of area of pain in physiotherapy and uh, and for being involved with the pain science division. That was really great to hear. I mean, you know, this this is something that <laughs> I think the three of us could keep going and going, talking about how how we're passionate about this topic. I mean. You know one of the things that i find is is just so interesting is that pain is probably one of the m- most difficult topics to explore one of the most complex very individual experiences to phenomenons to explore uh and and pain is is such a fundamental part of the human experience regardless of whether you are currently a patient or just not a patient going by uh through life i mean pain is inevitable and and, and so it's such a fascinating to explore. Now about the pain science division, it's, it kind of came in part out of this recognition of how complex pain is, how, how it's one of the most complex phenomena, uh, yet yet it's so widespread and almost inevitable as, as part of your uh, role as a physiotherapist. And And so it's not just about thinking about pain in terms of chronic or, or persistent pain, although that is a big part of it. And, and considering the unique considerations of conditions like fibromyalgia or complex regional pain syndrome, for example, you know, that does require a, a specific content expertise. And, and that, was, that has definitely been one of the drivers for forming the pain science division. But it's bigger than that. It's, it's also about having a deeper understanding of pain and the complexities of pain as as uh, Reno was highlighting the biopsychosocial model and and how there is this recognition that body and mind are not separate they're inextricably intertwined with one another and always present together uh, although maybe in different ways in different proportions and so to help people better understand and manage pain in all its complexity regardless of, whether it's chronic or not, but especially, of course, uh, in chronic and person pain conditions. In 2008, a, lo- a long-term effort towards creating the division uh, came to fruition. And in 2008, the pain science division was formed, uh, the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. And um, for those who are not familiar with the terminology at the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, divisions are the word they use for special interest groups. Uh, and so, the, and so uh, the Pain Science Division was formed then, founding chair being Neil Pearson. And then since 2008, the Pain Science Division has existed, as I said, to really serve physiotherapists, to support physiotherapists and advocates. Advocate for them in the area of pain and trying to better understand and manage pain, but also to facilitate networking and connection with other like-minded clinicians, educators, and researchers that have the same interest at the intersection of physiotherapy and pain, but as well to really facilitate the bi-directional translation of knowledge between pain research and clinical practice. And, and that kind of alludes to what I was talking about earlier, how both research and practice benefit from from one another and and could be better integrated uh, in both directions. And so the idea, um, the vision uh, behind the pain science division, since it was formed and, and it continues to be the same vision, is to really support physiotherapists to help Canadians with pain to live better with the help of physiotherapy. And there's a, there's a whole range of activities that we have at the pain science division. A lot of things that we do to achieve these goals. We, we talked about the advocacy efforts that exist and, and how uh, members can choose to be involved either actively or just by being a member and boosting our numbers. But it's also in terms of, for example, this podcast or our pain casts, or we have webinars uh, or courses, for example, March 25th, 26th in Ottawa, uh, there's a course, an in-person course that is being launched as a collaboration between the orthopedic division and the pain science division to really integrate pain science into your typical ortho practice. And although there might be a chance that this will be converted into an online course or another webinar that we're offering in April, April 13th, we have a panel of experts that are going to make a series of presentations and, and open up for discussion about what every physiotherapist needs to know about opioids and so you can register through that for that through Embodia or with uh, the way that Embodia is linked with the Canadian Physiotherapy Association if you're one of our members you would have seen it in in our recent email or you could see it also in, in our social media and then that's March. That's April. Boom. May. May 18th. What do we have? The Pain Science Division Student Forum that that was mentioned earlier. And so there's there's all these offerings that are sometimes more like a traditional course where you're learning towards more discussion and debate, towards more kind of also facilitating career path decisions like the student forum and being and kind of shining a light on um, all these different things that are interesting. And so there's there's that. We have the mentorship program which I mentioned. We have throughout the country these journal clubs that are called Pain Science to Practice Discussion Groups. Although they're clinically oriented, the focus of discussing journal articles is about how to implement them in practice. We have a lot going on uh, in terms of our website, for instance, that we're we're doing a lot of efforts towards making it a lot more user-friendly, a lot more effective. So to trying to use some knowledge translation science to really take our our website to the next level. And and we want to create opportunities to to support our, our community and to recognize them. And so from the world of research, we have a paint science research grant that comes out every second year. There's one right now. Uh, that's active. There's a clinical specialty program that's administered through the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. And we have in the past and, and want to continue recognizing our members uh, for their achievements. So I guess to recap, because I've been going, <laughs> I've been kind of listing a lot of things now, it's to help you with your education, staying connected, having a community, and and to help to move the profession forward in in, in this area of practice.
1: Wow, yeah, the pain science division is really doing a lot. And audience, if, if you're a physio or a physio student and not involved in pain science division yet, I think it's really worthwhile to get involved. Yeah,
2: and I'll just jump in. And, and if you wanna kind of get a taste of, of what, what's out there, there's a few things that, that you can access that even if you're not a member yet. For example, painscience.ca is a self-administered professional development tool that we created. You go on the website, you fill out a, a questionnaire that helps you identify where your gaps in knowledge in terms of the area of pain and, and physiotherapy. And then once you've identified your gaps in knowledge uh, on this website, again, it's painscience.ca, you you have a list of resources so that you can fill that gap in terms of either reading articles or webinars or courses or, or, or what you like. And then there's also paincasts which just very recently is now on Spotify. So, which really kudos to Tiffany and Rain for for doing that. So, if you if you're not yet a member and you want to get a taste of what we have to offer, these are things that I encourage you to check out. And then, if you do become a member, then then there's a lot more you can even access.
1: This gets me really excited about again the potential of what Pain Science Division can do in uh, serving physiotherapists, but also uh, the broader community. I, I've, I'm curious about, Arthur, uh, I know you won't be the chair next year, but being the chair right now and pushing these resources and advocacies and educational opportunities for our physiotherapy community, what is your vision of Pain Science Division in the next five to ten years? Like, what would you want Pain Science Division to be at? What, it's, what would you want to be like mm-hmm. by then?
2: That's a, that's a good question. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, at a micro level, you know, we're, we're hoping to continue to showcase the, our strengths, but also to polish off the things that are not working as well as we'd like them to. So there's been a, a longstanding effort towards improving our website and, and how uh, easy it is to be aware and remember everything that we have to offer and, and to engage with it with your day-to-day practice and staying up to date. So there's all these things that we're working towards proving. Um, but that's kind of like at the micro level. And, and of course, all the things that were that I've already mentioned in terms of our offerings. But you think of it maybe more at a macro level. And this is something where I'm going to borrow or be inspired by one of the past chairs that was here at the pain science division before me. So one of the past chairs, Janet Holly, we we had some nice discussions about the kind of long term vision for the pain science division and we felt that an interesting way that you could consider the pain science division to be successful if it reaches a point where everything that we're advocating for in terms of the biopsychosocial model of pain the, the inextricable link between psychology and 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 biology and 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 all the most up to date pain science knowledge well if, if it can be really well integrated into all the areas of practice and into all the other divisions, then, uh, you know, we jokingly said that the pain science division would achieve its mission, its vision, if it if it becomes obsolete, because everyone would have integrated all this pain science knowledge into all their areas of practice completely now of course <laughs> uh, there's there's still many reasons for us to, to remain alive and 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 the opposite of obsolete because knowledge is always evolving and and there are some topics that that are um that are very unique to pain science we consider for example different chronic pain chronic pain conditions but that's kind of one way w- where we thought that that the vision the big success of pain science really lies in the collaboration and integration across all practice areas in physiotherapy
1: Right. Yeah, it it is a macro level vision that, you know, one day if we can integrate this understanding of pain science uh, among the physiotherapy community such that every physio can very effectively help patients manage their pain, that would be a very eschatological vision that the pain science division would have. Having that in mind, what are some unique challenges as of the pain science different right now that you are for example encountering or seeing as you're leading the pain science division that would be barriers to achieving the micro level goals that you mentioned and also this macro yeah
2: level I, I think in large part one of the, the the main challenges of the pain science division is for people to really understand what we're about and and the reason why i list it as a challenge is because it requires a little bit of explanation it requires a little bit of nuance to really think about why is it important to have a dedicated special interest group that looks into the science of pain and and complex pain conditions it's been sometimes for instance questioned well isn't this topic isn't this uh, isn't pain already covered as part of for example the orthopedic division's curriculum and and, and the content that they cover and so I think the main challenge in the pain science division is for people to, is to shake any misconceptions about what pain science is. Sometimes some of the misconceptions are that, you know, you, you practice uh, in this kind of traditional biomedical way, and then when it doesn't work or you hit a wall, then you switch to the biopsychosocial model, right? And, And then you, you integrate that, but that's a huge misconception because you should be practicing like that from the get-go and 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 not further down the line and sometimes the misconception that pain science is this completely other thing and that we're maybe excessively involved in psychology or whatever but but it isn't right that the, the whole idea of pain science is to take what you're already doing the solid tried and true practice principles and knowledge of physiotherapy and to, to build that to expand on that with the recognition that that even though we are physical therapists you cannot remove the psychology from the person in front of you when you're going through your interaction so it's about having a level of knowledge that allows you to take that into account without necessarily being or pretending to be a psychologist that's that's kind of one example so so pain science is relevant from the start and not just later on pain science is about, building on what you already know, not about completely changing what you're doing. Uh, and, and so our challenges sometimes are fighting these misconceptions about what we are and fighting misconceptions about why is it that we need to exist and, and how we are distinguished from other divisions. I, and, and so we've, we have been, since the start, been doing a lot of efforts towards clarifying this identity and this branding and, and clarifying these misconceptions. But I think it, it remains a challenge. It remains a challenge especially in a society where we we sometimes just read the headline or just take two seconds to make a judgment about something when, something, when that something in particular might be a little bit more nuanced and requires you to go a little bit deeper to really appreciate what it is and what its value is. So I think that's a big challenge.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for sharing that. I'm hearing also your personal vision on how physiotherapists can approach pain science that this is not something that you incorporate later on when the biomedical model doesn't work. It's something that you wanna implement on the get-go. Even though pain science divisions is pain science, but it's also very much an art uh, how physios can incorporate this every single moment of their practice. Can you elaborate a little more on what does that look like? And for example, I, for an ideal physiotherapist to be able to do that, what, what do they do you on a daily basis? Yeah.
2: So I think, you know, there's a couple of ways to to answer this question. One of the ways that, that you can answer this question is, is to start thinking about what I mentioned earlier, that hurt doesn't necessarily equal harm, that there can be a, div- a divergence from pain versus injury. And so when you're thinking about traditional biomedical model, you you have certain expectations about, about, you know, if you have a certain type of injury of a certain level of severity, and and then you have certain expectations uh, for tissue healing of how, how or how fast the tissue healing is and, and how much pain you'd expect to have. But we know that pain is not this, direct measure of how much tissue damage is. It can be very closely correlated in some cases, but in some cases, you can really start to see that the amount of tissue damage and how much pain there is might be only somewhat correlated and not perfectly correlated. Now this is obviously different from case to case, but but starting to recognize when pain and the disability associated with pain, start to go in a direction that is different than you'd expect from a traditional biomedical view of of tissue damage and repair. And so I I think that that's a really important thing to consider because if you are diverging from this, how much pain or how much time it takes to recover based on this traditional biomedical model of of tissue injury, that means that there's other stuff going on uh, and to a different extent for different people. You can think about genetics, of course, but you can also think about uh, sensory sensitization factors, where you start to becoming, you start to develop uh, sensitization in relation to things that your body perceives as threatening, and so you can have quite a bit of pain with things that aren't necessarily causing tissue damage. You could have some psychological factors that are really important to consider be it catastrophizing or fear and that can really amplify any existing pain that you have or it can really kind of explain why you have this amount of activity limitations or participation restrictions even though you have this amount of tissue damage and and you'd expect that, that over this timeline the pain disability would have resolved and so by you start kind of with that recognition that understanding and from there what can be a really good way of approaching it is to think of the difference between screening and assessment, and then doing risk stratified management. And so when you're thinking about the biopsychosocial model, it's good to have a strategy so that in your evaluation, you kind of screen across all the areas, the biopsychosocial model, Uh, to see if there's anything that could be relevant you know screening about support from others thoughts and feelings understanding of pain how they're coping with pain uh, how it's affecting their activities and you just kind of screen do some screening that way and when you you pick up some signals that hey there seems to be something going on here then you take a deeper dive with with an actual assessment uh, something that goes deeper than a screening maybe as you screen, all these different things, you identify that, hey, it sounds like there might be some excessively negative perceptions about their pain, or they're thinking about, they seem to be really, their mind seems to be really stuck on it. Okay, now you've got your clue to do an assessment. And so you go and you administer the pain catastrophizing scale, for instance. And then as you're doing that, it's about identifying from a biopsychosocial standpoint, you know, what is your biggest barrier? What is your biggest ball and chain that is preventing you from move forward. Because if you don't take the time to identify what seems to be the biggest barrier, you might be doing everything perfectly, yet see very little or limited improvement in the person's pain and disability. Because there's something, there's an important barrier that first needs to be tackled before moving forward with the rest. And so you, you can do this kind of risk stratified management where you try to find people where uh, you try to determine if people are kind of low risk, don't have don't have any of these big barriers, and you can do it in the more traditional uh, kind of ortho way. Or if you're identifying that there are one or two barriers or many barriers and see if there's higher levels of risk, and so you need to adapt the approach to either be targeting the sensitization processes or to target the psychological or social barriers. And so it's really thinking about all this complexity from the get-go, recognizing the stuff like sensitization can happen within a week. It doesn't have to happen after three months, like the chronic pain definition. And to recognize that if you do that, you could prevent the development of chronic pain or when there is chronic pain and to better manage it.
0: Right. So it sounds like a key part of the biopsychosocial approach to managing pain and client care is to first always be on the lookout for signs of central sensitization and things like that. And then once you can, condi- once you sort of become suspicious that other things are going on having some clear strategies to investigate this further and i want to i want to circle back to talking more about your research as well i want to take a deeper dive into that um, because i know your phd is coming to an end you've almost finished that journey so i'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about your research and where you're headed
2: So this kind of builds nicely on on what I just talked about. You know, as physiotherapists, one of our main treatment tools is to prescribe physical activity and and exercise as as part of someone's physical rehabilitation and and as a non-pharmacological pain management strategy. But when you consider the research uh, and and the reality of it, you only tend to take advantage of, of the therapeutic effect of rehabilitative physical activity or exercise if the person adheres to the recommendations consistently and for a long enough period of time so that after a sufficient number of weeks or months, you, you build the benefit of physical activity on, on, on pain and disability, quality of life, and so forth. So, so one of our main interventions in physiotherapy depends on, on those conditions. Yet, for a lot of people with pain, as soon as they start to move, as as soon as they start to engage with a physical activity, they can have these immediate increases in pain, or they can have these immediate reactions in terms of negative thoughts and feelings, or or in terms of kind of like their sensory sensitization, it can start having reactions right away. And so these immediate sensitized reactions to physical activity Is the topic of my PhD. I'm looking at sensitivity to physical activity, trying to better understand it. What are the underlying processes of it? What is the prognostic value of assessing that and and how can it guide and inform treatment, uh, kind of in this like risk stratified way that I mentioned earlier? And also to try to better standardize this kind of evaluation, because right right now, a lot of physiotherapists uh, are likely thinking about the kind of immediate pain reactions and, and other reactions that people have when they try to do a physical activity. But for the purpose of having better prognostic value, there is value in in, in making it more standardized and robust as a approach to assessing sensitivity to physical activity. And, and thinking not just about kind of long-term outcomes like pain and disability three months down the line, but also thinking about in the days right after the assessment, the, what are the odds of having pain? flare-ups and stuff like that. So so that's kind of my my research area and, and something that I think it kind of speaks to uh, some of the stuff that I mentioned earlier, that on the surface, when you think about pain as a topic in physiotherapy, it seems relatively straightforward. But the moment you look beyond the surface, you realize that there's all these nuances that, although they may seem like almost like semantics, thinking about like reactions to physical activity right away versus later, but it makes a whole lot of difference in your, in your day-to-day management. If, if you can't get them on board with the physical activity program because of how they react in the moment right away, then you, you can't get the benefits that, that you're aiming for down the line. So so that's kind of what I'm, I'm doing with my PhD. I'm, I'm
0: curious about what other research to practice gaps you've seen
2: hmm there's, there's always so many areas that, that are so interesting and, and that could benefit from, from more research. But, uh, but I'll just name maybe another one that I find is really important and, and one that I'm working on as a side project with a colleague, and it's trauma-informed care. So the Canadian Pain Task Force Report, actually highlighted that equity-oriented, trauma-informed, and violence-informed approaches to care are a really important framework for us to operate as as clinicians, but also as as researchers and educators. And for those who aren't familiar with trauma-informed care, what it essentially refers to is when you're thinking about a patient, you know, or any person out in the community, Everyone has their own baggage that you might not be aware of, and that baggage may include some traumatic experiences or or near traumatic experiences. It could be in terms of physical abuse, it could be in terms of sexual abuse, it could be in terms of uh, some something that happens more at a systemic level or or, or a historical level, but but still very much affecting your your reality. And if we're not careful with how we interact with patients, we can inadvertently re-traumatize patients. We can trigger these past traumas with the things that we do. If we think about physiotherapy and you think of manual therapy or even just how our evaluation process, if you're asking someone to remove a piece of clothing, but they've had a history of sexual abuse, or if you jump into doing some hands-on therapy without providing choice and asking for permission and explaining what you do ahead of time, someone, for example, with physical abuse or uh, torture victims uh, or, or other abuses might might, might be re-traumatized and, and, and triggered by you kind of jumping in there too quickly and not providing Enough explanations ahead of time, and and providing choice, and and engaging in it with uh, a sense of collaboration, and 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 we think that that it's that it's something that's rare or or whatever, but in in reality, it's quite common, much more common than we think. So there was a study a little over ten years ago that was focused on these kind of traumatic adverse experiences, and they found that in general, in Canada three out of four Canadians would have had at least a one traumatic experience in their lifetime. That's three out of four in the general population. And if we think about the risk factors for developing chronic pain or persistent pain, these these kind of early life adverse events are a risk factor. And so you're probably dealing with an even higher prevalence than three out of four. And so, so it's a really interesting topic, and I realize that I'm going a little too deep into it. Obviously, I'm, I'm very interested in it, but it's a it's, it's another interesting way to, to think about how pain science applies to uh, many areas of practice. If you were doing pelvic floor physiotherapy, for instance, where it's not about trying to directly ask a patient about their trauma and directly intervening on it, because that's really the scope of practice of psychologists. But it's about adopting certain principles in how we interact with patients and how we introduce treatment options and and, and apply them that are least likely to re-traumatize and trigger past traumas. And it comes from a place of recognizing that there's a really high prevalence of, of Canadians, of people living with a past traumatic experience.
0: Right. And so I guess I'm also curious about how that gap can be narrowed, because I think trauma informed care and providing that care to patients takes a lot of skill and learning. So I think we have to be open to that first as physiotherapy students and physiotherapists. But I'm wondering what can physios and physio students do to help narrow that gap in their application?
2: Yeah. So for example, if we're on this topic of trauma-informed care, Alberta Health Services have created these series of, uh, of free e-modules on trauma-informed care. And so you can just go on Google, write Alberta Health Services, trauma-informed care e-module, and, and you, can, you can do that for free. And, and you'll realize that as much as it sounds like special skill or knowledge, you'll, you'll kind of realize that you're actually probably already doing a lot of it, without realizing that it fits under the category of trauma and care, but it just kind of maybe comes from a place of trying to have person-centered care and just general social etiquette, I suppose. Uh, But to really kind of take that a little bit further, and and although you may be doing some of it, to really kind of become really well-rounded in doing all of the best practices in interaction style that really fosters a sense of safety for the patient and that is least likely to re-trigger anything from their past. And that's really this complexity of recognizing that, you know, it's not about, it's not only about how it can hurt or help your clinical interaction and the likelihood that they'll come back for a follow-up if we're thinking of a private practice, but, but also the direct link that early life events or even doesn't have to be early life, just any moment in life events can have on pain, right? Or your, your past experiences that have maybe wound up your autonomic nervous system towards being really activated from a sympathetic nervous system standpoint, affecting also kind of your perceptions and, and your level of sensory sensitization. You know, these are all things that suddenly you realize are all connected together. And it can start from a simple place of having adopting principles of, of interaction and having an awareness that there can be past traumatic experiences and they can be relevant across all these spheres. And and, and this is an area of research that in physiotherapy, but also in general, uh, is relatively new-ish, but really still has a lot of work ahead of it. And and so some of the research that I'm, I'm working towards as a first step is conducting a survey across all healthcare professionals in Canada who treat people with chronic pain to see the extent to which they're Uh, aware of trauma and trauma-informed care and you know what are their beliefs and attitudes about it about implementing in their practice to what extent are they already doing it and their willingness to to do more of it and then from there you can you can identify what are your facilitators and barriers uh, for any like knowledge translation initiatives that you would do to try to get people to do it more and then after that you can really go and 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 try to have these kind of widespread continuing education and professional development interventions and in tracking the impact it's had in terms of having a. wider implementation across all professions that treat people with pain so so that's kind of some stuff to consider but there's a lot of areas of research in in pain right if you think about basic science so basic science refers to research that's maybe more at the molecular level maybe use more uh, animal studies to really get a fundamental understanding of what areas of the brain are involved and how are they related to the other parts of of the person and the physiological effects of different pharmacological interventions but also non-pharmacological interventions and really kind of better uh just having a you know the more we can understand pain at every level be it molecular or uh, at animal testing or clinical studies or observational studies or or randomized control trials at all levels the more we can understand pain profoundly the more it offers us opportunities to either fine-tune our existing interventions so that they're more effective, so that they're more personalized. What I mean by that is thinking about the fact that each patient is is different from the next patient and how to personalize that to each person. And, and so, so the deeper the, the we understand pain, the more we can either fine tune our existing interventions or even develop new interventions at all levels, be it pharmacological invasive stuff to more physical based or exercise based or psychology based or social based and so forth.
0: That's very interesting and very important work. I want to ask one more question related to your research. So you mentioned that your PhD revolves around sensitivity to physical activity among those who experience complex pain um, and potentially chronic pain. And so my question for you is, um, how will you incorporate what you've learned in that research into a clinical context? Because I know you're also working on private practice as well.
2: Yeah, so if I if I take for example some of the knowledge that's coming out in recent pain research. So for example, I talked about personalized care. So there's this increasing recognition and distinction between different types of pain, right? You have you have nociceptive pain where you have a closer relationship to what you'd think of like nociception as, as a nerve signal and, and the amount of, uh, and the, the extent of the pain experience that you'll get. Or you have neuropathic pain, which is really related to uh, damage or disease of nerves. And then you have nociplastic pain, re- which really relates to an altered physiology or functioning of the pain system and having amplified pain. So if we're thinking of central sensitization, for example, so the, the, the usefulness of identifying what seems to be the dominant type of pain, even though you can have more than one at the same time, is that there are certain treatment approaches that work better depending on what is the dominant type of pain. And so that's kind of one example of broader pain research that I would take into consideration is that you have these these algorithms, these flowcharts that can help you identify what seems to be the dominant type of pain. And, and then if you think about it specifically in the context of prescribing physical activity or exercise as a treatment, there's a lot of research. Some of it is labeled under sensitivity to physical activity, which is what I'm doing. But, but it also, there's a lot of other terms that relate to it, like exercise-induced hypoalgesia or hyperalgesia, for instance. And what's really interesting when you you get involved in in that research is that you realize that, okay, let's... Let's have this kind of standardized structured way of evaluating the extent to which someone is sensitized to engaging with movement, with physical activity and uh, exercise. And it helps you with determining the, for example, the dosage, the intensity of how you start off the exercise program, right? So if you don't take into account that someone is highly sensitized to physical activity, then you might prescribe at a dosage or intensity that's too difficult right off the bat. The person gets a big flare up. And they're like, my physiotherapist just made me worse. Uh, and then they don't want to do the exercises anymore. They just leave physiotherapy and they say, oh, I just want to get massages instead. So it, it, uh, it allows you to be like, okay, this is the extent to which this person is sensitized. And this is the ex- how I can, for example, set the initial intensity or, or dosage. And, and also like when you're trying to progress the exercises. But you can also think about it to in the extent that, you know, is this like a a local sensitized area that's responding or is it like a widespread sensitization and thinking about the implications about providing exercises initially maybe that are indirect to the specific area in pain or and then eventually progressing to doing exercises that directly target the area or if if someone has like a widespread pain, then there's research showing that uh, starting off in a self-paced manner is better than in a prescribed manner. And so depending on what is the level of sensitivity, how is it expressed? Is it is it localized? Is it broad? Is it predominantly this kind of uh, situational activity evoked psychological responses that we're trying to mediate, like with cognitive functional therapy? Or, or are we dealing with this kind of Uh, sensitized reactions and we can start thinking about, okay, cardio versus strength, indirect multi-joint compound exercises versus targeted localized exercise. And do you start off with one and when do you move on to the next so that you really mitigate the risks of triggering a flare up or conversely to mitigate the risks of going too easy and not having any effect, right? You want to Make sure you push hard enough. And when you engage in this area of research, there's a lot of clinical applications. You know, thinking even just about the fact that when you prescribe physical activity and exercise, you can do it in a way that causes pain, but you know, given maybe certain parameters, where where the pain increase that happens is tolerable, temporary, and and doesn't change the overall recovery trajectory of the person where we're sometimes, you know, when we think about people who have sensitized reactions to physical activity and exercise, we, we sometimes think that we need to find a way to do movement that causes no increase in pain, that doesn't evoke any pain. But as much as this is something that you can, you know, you want to do for the comfort of your patient, you don't want to go at it too intensely, right? Because if you try at all costs to avoid any sensitized reaction, even if it's temporary and harmless, uh, with activity and movement, and then, then you might be inadvertently implying to the person that they should never move with pain. And so they develop these, uh, excessive fears about pain with movement. Um, and whereas in reality there, there's, a uh, there's systematic review and, and, and good research to show that you can work with some pain, that it's not, uh, that you don't need to avoid having pain with movement at all costs. I mean, of course you do what you can so that it's, it's, uh, you know, not too unpleasant as an experience for the patient, that it's something that is acceptable and tolerable and, and that anything you do is, is, uh, in terms of having pain with movement is, is temporary and, and harmless, but you don't need to completely avoid it. And then suddenly start passing a message about uh, about how uh, someone should be like completely still and sedentary when, when they have pain because, oh no, don't't don't, don't you go and start moving and causing pain. And, and you know, and some of that is is, is really rooted in stuff that we talked about earlier that sometimes there's this belief that any amount of pain we feel is always an indication of damage. and so we should avoid it, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, you could have pain without damage and and that's why it's acceptable to do activity and and rehab exercises with pain
1: right there's a lot of considerations when it comes to working with pain chronic pain or complex pain and it'll be interesting to have you on uh, after let's say a year of your practice in your chronic pain clinic and see how have you helped your patients I think we've covered a lot of grounds and it's, it's so great to hear because you, you have a very unique perspective as a clinician researcher and also as a person who is highly involved in pain science and pain science advocacy. Uh, how do our audience learn more about the work that you're doing, the chronic pain clinic that you are opening and uh, get in touch with more of the things that, uh, for example, your research as well?
2: Yeah. Thanks, Stephanie and Reina. So as I'm seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, the tunnel being my PhD, I'm I'm gearing up towards the next phase in in my in my career. And so as I'm winding down my PhD, I'm in the process of launching my own clinic, the chronic pain rehab clinic. And, and so if you want to learn more about me or get in touch with me within the next few weeks or so, or next month, I should be finalizing my website, www.chronicpainrehab.ca. You you can get in touch with me through there or my social media handle at chronic pain rehab. And so right now, probably if you go there right now, it's all like sort of under construction or not really available, but within the next few weeks or next month or so, that will be a way for you uh, to be able to get in touch with me. And as I start posting stuff, uh, the knowledge that I want to (laughs) share and my perspective.
1: Great. Thank you. Do you have any final things that you want to cover, want to say to our audience?
2: Um, I would say, look us up, look up the pain science division. If you know, if, if you're listening to this through Spotify, look up the description and, and, uh, and you should find some links to, to learn more about the Paint science division. You can look at our professional development tool, the look us up, become one of our numbers, right? Sometimes people say, I don't want to be a number, but I'm encouraging you to be very you... few. If you pay the 35 bucks annual fee to be a pain science division member, then we have more members and then we have a stronger voice in our advocacy, but you also benefit from everything that we offer in terms of webinars and, and podcasts and mentorship programs and pain science practice discussion groups and networking and all the efforts we're doing to do knowledge translation and so on and so forth, which you've heard about a ton today. So I encourage you to to look us up, reach out to us, reach out to Tiffany, reach out to Raina, reach out to me, reach out to anyone at the Pain Science Division. We'd be more than happy to, to talk to you.
1: Amazing. And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, give our podcast a rating rating! It will help us with uh, the algorithms and all that. And make sure you spread your word to your fellow physios and physio students and anyone interested in pain science. Thank you so much, Arthur, for spending time with us and talk so much about pain science. And I wish you all the best with your PhD and opening up your chronic pain clinic. And to our audience, all the best
2: to you as well.